Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, friends. Hey, Carla. Michael. How you doing? <laughs> Man, it's it's been so busy. I know. Like, I, I feel truly like we're in the holiday season. Like You now, were right. Because Halloween is like the gatekeeper. And I just, I have the feeling, the suspicion that this is going to be our pace for the rest of the year. So. Oh, I don't know. It's been, so, you know, a few weeks ago, I did Halloween Horror Nights. With, yeah. Oh, with, how did that to go? Celebrate. It, was, it was fun. So I actually ended up making it through five haunted houses. I'm so proud of you. Yeah, I, I did I good. I think you mentioned it on one of our episodes, but Carla can be a little bit of a scaredy cat in yes. those kinds of settings. So right, my, there are many things you are not afraid of, but haunted houses you are. Yeah, my fight and flight. Um, definitely. So I cheated a little bit. So the thing about Universal is, you know, you're kind of single file and it's really just jump scares, like someone jumping out at you. And sure. then they're, they're remaining pretty stationary. They're not chasing you from room to room, yeah. which makes you feel like you need to run or push people at, cause I'm going to survive. So like, just let it be known. Like if that means I have to push people, knock them over, crawl over them, I'm going to figure out my way out. This is a much more calm event. You're like just walking, oh you know, God. pretty much nonstop. So I would hold on to my son and close my eyes and literally just walk blind through it. Car, I don't even know that you get points for having done the haunted house if that's how you approach it. I mean, like I open my eyes every once in a while. But <laughs> for the most part, it kept me from like peeing my pants. Oh, so God. We did that. I've had a lot of like friends from work coming in town to visit and feel like I've been like doing dinners and things like that. So it's it's all been very good, but I feel like I've been very social lately, like doing a lot of things. So I am hoping that it slows down just a little bit. Also our our friend turned 40. Oh yeah, that's so right. One of our one of our happy our best birthday friends. listener yeah. Megan. Yeah. I think happy we can birthday, say that. Megan. Yeah, just no last names. <laughs> yeah. Um so we threw her a birthday party last night. We did drink around the world and i i felt like it this morning so i was tired <laughs> which is so funny too because all of those were just like mini shots yeah like when i tallied it up last night we did not actually drink that much because all mm-hmm. of them were just tiny thimbles of stuff you know? i will say i'm tired just from like just being active and like doing things and i ended up staying up late last night but i really wasn't i was i i wasn't tired from the drinking yeah so in uh, the holiday spirit, we, of course, listeners, have been leaning in a little bit to spooky season. We've had a lot of fun bringing you stories like the Candyman, like the Ken and Barbie murders. Um, and I'm going to be wrapping us out in style for spooky season as we go into the rest of the holidays with a story today around the Salem witch trials. Awesome. I know. This one's so fun. I didn't know a lot about this time really? period. Okay. And... I think universally when we think about the Salem witch trials in in a lot of people's minds, these went on for years and years and years and were this gigantic part of our history when in reality, they only occurred in less than two years. It was June of 1692 through May of 1693. So I'm going to take us all the way back to the late 17th century, right as we're getting ready to go into the 18th century and talk about some trials that really shaped a lot of how we adjudicate things in the United States these days. Are you ready, Carla? Season of the Witch. Let's, oh, I like that. Let's bring it. Let's dive in. As I mentioned, the year is 1692. And really, we're backing up a little bit before that. So we're in the um, mid-1680s at this point. And just to give you some context of the world, because the United States isn't really a thing yet. So let's talk a little bit about what the right. world was going through. This was the aftermath, or really specifically the Salem Witch Trials, were the tail end of witch hunting that had begun in the early 14th century and continued all the way through the 18th century. So there were 400 years where we were making accusations about potential use of magic, specifically witchcraft, a a brand of witchcraft that was associated with the demonic and the satanic. 
The last known execution for witchcraft was in Switzerland in 1782, which does not feel that long ago in the grand scheme of things. So the Salem witch trials were really pretty late in the game, right? They're in the last 80 to 90 years of this more than 400 years long spanning of hunting down witches. And in fact, they're so near the end of it that Switzerland case was really a one-off. Like that was super late in the game. But even by the time we get to Salem, Massachusetts in the late 1680s, a lot of the energy around witch hunting, the convicting and the executing of these so-called witches, a lot of that had abated in Europe and elsewhere around the world. Okay. But remember, the colonies are brand yes. new, right? This is a very new, not even fully actuated country yet. And in a lot of ways in history, we would linger behind the European colonies because they were much more developed uh, towns and cities and you know philosophical centers in their own worlds. So we're in Massachusetts. At the time, there were actually two Salems. So there's Salem Town, which was a really significant port city on the Massachusetts Bay in the late 1600s. But that's not really what we're talking about when we talk about Salem. You would think it is because it's the more established city. When we talk about Salem in reference to the witch trials, we're talking about Salem Village, which was about another 10 miles inland. It was a farming community, a little less prominent. To be honest, a little more poor. The folks that tended to be here weren't as established. There was a lot of opportunity in an up-and-coming city like that. But also, you didn't have all of the amenities of the larger city, so it hadn't yet started to attract some of the the bigger, more prominent, influential names that tended to live closer to the bay. As most communities this size have the tendency to become, the village was rife with some local drama, right? Like all sorts of good old boys clubs, politics, religion, just the kind of things some nosy bees like digging into. (laughs) People were vying for influence and what they saw as a future seat of power. And when we talk about some of the drama, I mean, it would get kind of nasty. A lot of it was pretty litigious. There were lots of lawsuits. Most of it was over land disputes. Right. And we would see this coming from all over, but specifically there were two really influential families that we're going to hear a lot about as we go through our, our tale today, the Putnam family and the Porter family. The Porters had connections in Salem Town, the larger community that was closer to Massachusetts Bay. They were very wealthy and worked with many of the established merchants in their sister cities. And they saw Salem Village as kind of an extension of Salem Town. This differed greatly from the Putnams. They had a very different point of view and vision for the town. The Putnams wanted it to be a more independent entity that didn't rely as heavily on Salem Town for its own success. Likewise, and I think we can see this to be true in a lot of our cities versus more rural areas today in the United States, the belief systems of a larger city, the philosophy, the theology, which of course is a big part of this story, were very different in a larger, more established city like Salem Town, this Salem village, they wanted it to be a little more tightly knit, more puritanical, more wholesome, if you will. And so they wanted some ability to set their own standards when it came to those beliefs as well. At some point in 1689, the Salem village's community church had become in need of a new pastor. Through some of the Porter's connections, because remember, they have all of these connections in the town, They recruited and helped put in place a gentleman by the name of Samuel Paris. Samuel had studied theology at Harvard, NBD, no big deal. (laughs) I know, and was a merchant from Boston who also did trade in Barbados and some of the surrounding islands. He brought with him his wife and three children, a niece and two slaves. Samuel wasted no time inserting his own very rigid puritanical theology onto his new congregation. And as part of that, some of these more what some would call extreme, very conservative, very rigid views had started to take hold in the colonies. And these people proudly called themselves Puritans. Samuel was part of that belief system. His ideas were very controversial with some in the congregation finding them too extreme, even in this smaller rural town. He had a darker and at times, I think, a cruel interpretation of the Bible and what judgment meant in that context. No surprise there. No surprise whatsoever. But others in the church, you know, there were some that were hating on him, and then others in the church seemed to align with what Samuel Paris had to say. His hardline views of scripture resonated with them. 
And this division was made worse by some of Paris's practices. He would imply through certain ceremonies in the church that there were real, air quotes, congregation members who were allowed to take communion at church while others were not allowed to. And it felt like the definition of who got to leave and who got to stay was kind of left up to Paris at the time. And so people obviously had some, some feelings about that. This, of course, encouraged those whom he had deemed as worthy to turn away those that had been written off. So even if they had been friends before, this really influential man in the town kind of drawing this line artificially there turned people that had previously been friends at odds with each other. I feel like that's what they do though. Like I, I feel like people like that, like that is what they they look to do. Like they want to they separate, they want to break down, you know, some of the connections and relationships and really community that people have built. There's power in doing that. It's kind of gross. And I don't always know how intentional that is, but I think the same thing. Like that's often what you see is breaking down these established relationships and this established knowledge so that you can insert some of your own. Right. And Paris seemed to theorize, because again, some of these views were really out there. Of course, everyone in Salem Village at this time was a Christian, believed in God, but Paris had a very literal interpretation of what was happening, including around spiritual warfare. He saw these things as real happenings that could affect the real world, that Satan and God, angels and demons, were tangible beings that a person could actively communicate with and even barter with, perhaps even be possessed by them, and that some could even gain supernatural abilities from Satan himself if they agreed to trade their souls. And some of Paris's really extreme views would come even more to light as some strange goings-on would start to haunt Salem Village. You see, for a couple of months now, there had been rumors that Tichaba, who was one of the Paris family slaves, had been teaching the Paris children, along with Anne Putnam, some disturbing practices. Practices that hailed from Tichaba's own voodoo belief system. Uh, it's believed that she at least grew up in Barbados if she wasn't just outright from Barbados. And some of those practices with that voodoo belief system flirted with the mysterious and the magical, even getting into things like spell casting and fortune telling, which were, of course, very big no-nos to a Puritan society. I, right. They like, hold up, what you say? <laughs> So rumors swirled around the village about these wretched and sinful ceremonies that Tichaba was teaching to these, again, prominent children in the community. Word also came out about equally frightening and seemingly paranormal activity. The girls had started having what they would call fits that took over their entire bodies, some of them causing severe convulsions. The girls would be on the ground contorting their bodies into really unnatural positions. As any concerned and responsible family and community would do, they, of course, sought out medical help. This is scary as fuck. Let's go get a doctor. Right, like, what's going on? Exactly. So they seek out the village's medical doctor, but he, too, was confounded. He would eventually conclude that the only possible cause of such disturbing manifestations had to be supernatural. At the peak of the activity, the girls would scream out in pain, complain that they felt like bites and pinches and pinpricks all over their bodies. And they were building an intensity and frequency over the weeks and months that they were beginning to look into these things, with some of the later instances escalating to the point where the girls were choking and vomiting as they arrived around contorted on the floor. Yeah, I mean, that if I were a medical doctor, I would be like, all the other options are out. It, it must be the devil. <laughs> Call the priest. Yeah, there. That's that's the probably you know the number five step that I would have went to. You know, I I mean for me I do understand like I think this would be terrifying to witness. Right. Especially if you're seeing it repeatedly and you have a basic understanding. Like it, we always have the benefit of looking back at it through a lens of history and having some context to it. But in this day and age, this guy is a really learned man, right? Like, he's a scientist, and so he thinks he knows some shit. And then all of a sudden, these girls who were perfectly healthy just a couple of weeks before are contorted on the ground, vomiting and choking and mumbling to themselves about feeling like they're being attacked by some unseen force. I'd be like, let's 
call a priest? <laughs> I'm just gonna Where say, are the fucking Ghostbusters? <laughs> it's a good thing that it was like girls and not like the men in the community. Because, oh my gosh. You know, like we always joke, like as women, like we joke about like men having like the man flu and like most women just do not have any sympathy for their husbands or their male loved ones when they get sick. And so had this been the men in the community, that would getting we would be like, get up off the floor. We know you're faking it. <laughs> yeah. So you're being a whiny right. baby. <laughs> it was very purposeful and it, it, I can see much more coming from our daughters. I don't think I can stress enough how scary this must have been for their families, sure. for these other the other community members, right? What had happened to these girls? They were supposed to be not just like upstanding citizens, but they are upstanding citizens from prominent families that are believed to be good, God-fearing, church-supporting families that were strong in their faith. And while Samuel Paris is, of course, concerned with the physical safety of his daughter and his niece, he's also concerned for their spiritual well-being. And not just theirs, because if their symptoms really did have a hellish cause, it needed to be stopped before it spread to other members of the congregation. Samuel had seen descriptions of behaviors like this before. The popular minister Cotton Mathers had laid out some of his own observations from a supposed bewitching in Boston that had occurred just a few years earlier in 1688, and they fit perfectly with what was being experienced right now. So with this in mind, Samuel began a pressure campaign of sorts, one in which he tried to urge his daughter Betty and his niece Abigail to disclose what or who was causing their discomfort. Who's doing this to you? Samuel Paris was determined to snuff out this evil with the light and purity of heaven itself. After months of increased scrutiny, the girls would finally reveal to the village who they thought they were being tortured by. And they named Tichaba, maybe no surprise, but there had already, of course, been rumors swirling there, but two other witches that were as of yet unknown, two women named Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. The townspeople were shocked at this revelation. How could they have three servants of Satan right under their noses for all this time <laughs> and then be none the wiser? This is supposed to be a God-fearing community. As they started to process this information they had just heard, some began to think that there had, in fact, been signs all along. Residents, like we mentioned, were already suspecting of Tichaba, given the earlier gossip that had spread about her background in voodoo, and they were scared of her, quite frankly. Though less obvious choices for Satan's pawns, upon hearing the names of the two Sarahs, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, many in the village also found this to be plausible. After all, Sarah Osborne was a pariah in the community. She had previously had a relationship with an indentured servant, and many said that their forbidden romance left Osborne not only an outcast, but what was the cause of her being bedridden at this point in her life. They basically said that that was God's punishment coming back on her for a sinful act. So this idea that she might be a witch, it started to kind of fit. And as far as Sarah Good was concerned, she was an equally convincing villain for many. She was a homeless beggar, and she had a really foul and unpredictable temperament. She would pretty consistently lash out at people she was passing in the community. Just someone that made a lot of people in the town uncomfortable, and she was an easy target for their fear because of this. And few in Salem Village were more afraid of anything than by being possessed by demonic forces. And Sarah Good certainly looked like she might fit the bill. Well, you know, it's the 1600s. There's a lot to be worried about, and fear of demonic <laughs> possession should be at the top of that list. It's really Not at the top. Like poverty, not like starving to death. Dysentery, Winter, right, yeah. (laughs) Not not all the other things um, that could happen. The devil made me do it. (laughs) So everything is starting to come to a head in Salem Village. Two of the village's magistrates were sent to question Tichaba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. All three women would claim to be innocent. All three were offered no defense. They basically just had to be questioned unfettered and let these accusations and questions be hurled at them. But Tichaba seemed to be the most badgered of all. The magistrates and the other village authorities were relentless in their questioning of her, interrogating her for hours on end, with some sources claiming that at times these tactics resembled torture, all for the sake of trying to loosen the tongue of the accused. And it seemingly worked. 
Tichaba may have been worn down by her aggressors or maybe as a way to take some control of the narrative that was being spun at her. We'll never fully know her motivations here, but she would say that she had in fact sold her soul to Satan himself. She gave them the answer that they kind of wanted to hear the whole time. As she would tell it, one night in a dream, she had been visited by the devil. He had shown her all these many wonders that he could do. And her, seeing all the powers and abilities that he possessed, she wanted some of that power for herself. She would be his servant if he would share his dark gifts and allow her to wreak havoc on the good godly people of Salem. Tichaba would describe her encounters at length. Some of her stories would include details cavorting with various animal familiars of the devil and making a deal with a tall, dark man in Boston who had convinced her to sign what she now believed was the devil's book. All said, she would testify for three days in front of the magistrates, and near the end of this testimony, she would claim that when she had signed her name to the devil's book, she had also seen other names. Naturally, she had seen the names of Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, so confirmed witches right there, but she had also seen seven others in the book, but wasn't able to quite make them out. This, of course, sent the community into a frenzy. Tichaba's confession seemed to confirm all of their worst fears, even though they only had this one detailed testimony, because it seemed to align with all of their suspicions so perfectly, this testimony was taken to be the truth, and more evidence was inbound because it wasn't long before others in the village began experiencing some of the same fits that had originally plagued Abigail and Betty. The devil, it would seem, was on the prowl and intended to broaden his attack to all of the people of Salem Village. Soon, even members of the prominent Putnam family were being affected, including Anne and her cousin Mary and her servant Mercy. They would, just as the other girls had before, claim to be tormented by unseen forces, saying that they were being pinched and pricked and bitten. At hearing this and seeing so many God-fearing people fall victims to these attacks, the whole community fell into a collective state of panic, for lack of a better term. Everyone was afraid, which began to seed general feelings of distrust and suspicion throughout the region, even where none had existed before. And to make matters worse, it wasn't just the number of victims that was growing. See, Anne and Mary and Mercy would share that it wasn't just Tichaba and the two Sarahs that were doing Satan's bidding. There were more witches in Salem. This lined up with what Tichaba had seen in the book. And some of these people didn't fit quite so neatly into people's perception of who were witches at the time. So, so far, note that the three people accused of this are really like outcasts of the community. Right. It's, it's the slave girl. It's the pariah who had um, a romantic relationship with an indentured servant and the homeless person who, you know, looking at through the lens of history was probably mentally unwell. Right. These were easy people to cast blame upon, but it was starting to move beyond that now. Some now being accused were not people on those fringes of society, but again, upstanding citizens like one prominent community member named Rebecca Nurse. She was from a good family that was well-established in the community and not one certainly at all that anyone would think for a second would be given to going down this road of witchcraft, demonic possession, but some were starting to believe that maybe, just maybe, it could be true. The Salem townspeople took this as a sign that they needed to be vigilant and decisive in their response to this evil because the devil, it would seem, was gaining a foothold in Salem, Massachusetts. By May of 1692, Salem had gone from being in a frenzy to being in an uproar. Confusion and panic were rampant. They had completely taken over. The town was holding regular hearings meant to out witches in the community and in prison and maybe even further punish them. They wanted this evil rooted out. All of this chaos and upheaval was now making its way to other communities as well. Seeing the situation as a problem that needed to be solved authoritatively, Sir William Phipps, who was the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, would step in to try to restore order. He put in place a more formal and rigorous set of trials. Phipps ordered the establishment of an official court to oversee these trials and come to the truth once and for all. The court would have seven judges from the community and would seek to settle the sinful matters of Salem for good. 
Those accused of witchcraft and collusion with the devil were brought before this court and forced to defend themselves. Like we saw with the earlier accusations of Tichaba and the two Sarahs, they were not afforded any counsel, no kind of legal aid to stave off their accusers. In fact, often fantastical so-called evidence that I'm putting in air quotes would be thrown at them that couldn't be defended against even if they were allowed to have legal counsel to help. The worst of this was so-called spectral evidence, wherein the supposed victims would see the spectral likenesses of the people that were attacking them. They weren't actually physical there. They were almost seeing spirit versions of them before feeling these sensations of choking or being pricked or stabbed or bitten. While some in the village were skeptical of using this spectral evidence, they were finding it difficult to distrust their own eyes and ears because many of the victims of this purported witchcraft would come to the trials and at times, while they were sitting right there in the courtroom, they would devolve into these fits and convulsions right in front of the judges and all of the community members that had gathered. Onlookers believed that they were witnessing demonic attacks in real time, happening to these innocent young members of their church and community. As the trials continued, a certain mob mentality started to spread throughout the people of Salem. Many were happy to see their perceived foes put on trial. Their lives laid bare before everyone. All of their mistakes magnified. Further, surely they couldn't be in the wrong for wanting a wholesome, God-fearing society, and that required the evil be hunted down and eliminated. So hunt they did. One by one, dozens were put on trial for the crime of witchcraft. Those that admitted their guilt, or their supposed guilt rather, would often be spared the harsher punishments, especially if they gave up the names of other witches. Funny how that works. In the Puritans' minds, God was going to have his way with these people anyway, so it was enough for them to just make them outcasts of the community. But those that continued to claim and defend their innocence often met far less agreeable ends, and starting with Bridget Bishop in June of 1692. Bridget was actually a fairly prominent member of the community, but one that wasn't well-loved. She ran a pub in the area, and she was known for being a little eccentric. She liked dressing really colorfully. She'd sometimes be caught having conversations with herself, which I'm like, girl, if people saw me. We, we would be screwed, Michael. I don't even know. We would for sure be on trial. I would be on trial for sure. But this eccentricity had led to her being accused of witchcraft more than a decade prior over in Boston. It would seem that her years-long status as an outcast was simply not enough for the fervent believers in Salem Village. They're like, well, wait a minute. We accused you of this 10 years ago, and now you're on trial for it again. You have to be guilty. There's right. no way that you're it's not. It's now a pattern. That's right. So Bridget would be the first to be hanged on Gallows Hill in Salem Village. She would be quickly followed by five more hangings later that same month, and among them were our friends Sarah Good and Rebecca Nurse. Sarah Good, I found interesting when she was accused of witchcraft by one of the magistrates, said, I'm no more a witch than you are a wizard, and then he swiftly dropped her. <laughs> kind of awful. Wow. wow. Many were hanged or otherwise gruesomely put to death, sometimes bleeding over to relatives of the accused, even though they weren't themselves on trial originally. One such example was Giles Corey, his wife had been accused of being a witch, and following the conviction and death of his wife, he was somehow also accused of witchcraft. When he refused to enter a plea of either guilty or innocent, just wouldn't put a plea, he wasn't about to play their games, the villagers got creative by slowly crushing Giles to death between two giant boulders. The process to kill him took two days. Wow. I mean, they were creative. Like... <laughs> Not creative enough to come up with any other idea that, you know, of what could witchcraft, be the, That's right. But when it came to torture and very creative. As the trials went on, though, some started to question their legitimacy. This, obviously, these, I mean, you and I are talking about, we're like, are you serious? You just crushed a man to death. Common because his, because his wife was accused right. of something. This Has is just, just crazy. Some things just weren't adding up. In one other example, a former minister to Salem Village had he had since moved on to Boston, and they had called him back to stand trial. Though he protested his innocence, he had literally been a Christian minister for this community. 
he would eventually be convicted and was hanged in August of 1692. While he was waiting for his execution, though, he was able to perfectly and completely recite the Lord's Prayer. This really put some people's antenna up because they had been told by really prominent ministers, again, like Cotton and Increase Mathers, that this wasn't possible, that if you were possessed by the devil, you surely couldn't utter those holy words to completion. And I would say with all of their experience around pe- around the devil, they, they should absolutely know. You know, I'm sure they teach a class on devil characteristics at Harvard? (laughs) I guess so. I mean, it was largely a theological institution back then, so maybe. But (laughs) I I feel the same way. I'm like, are you serious right now? So I'm glad that people were starting to wake up to this at this point and be like, wait, something just doesn't seem right here. Originally, the idea was Satan was trying to get a foothold in Salem. They saw themselves as this really powerful up-and-coming community And, of course, Satan would want to come and get a foothold there. Like, if they were going to be the next big thing, then where better to start? But soon these accusations of witchcraft weren't just centered around Salem anymore. They were going to some of these surrounding communities. And so it's like, wait a minute, is is Salem or isn't Salem kind of the epicenter of what's going on? They seemed focused, these attacks and accusations, on more powerful members of the community, leading some to think that all that finger-pointing Shock of all shocks, Carla, might just be political and personal. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> this sense of political tit-for-tat came to a head when the wife of William Phipps was accused herself of witchcraft, who, if you'll remember, was the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the very person that had set up the Salem witch trials to begin with. His wife was now being accused of witchcraft. <laughs> Upon hearing this, he called a pause on the trials immediately. But remember, he's still got a lot of people in this community that are thinking that this is something that's really going on, that Satan really is going after these people. So rather than just stop the trials altogether, what he did was he disbanded the previous court and he established a new body called the Superior Court of Judicature. Though trials would again proceed in January of 1693, so-called spectral evidence was no longer allowed. Increase Mathers is the father of Cotton Mathers we heard about earlier. Cotton Mathers was the gentleman that had supposedly uh, gotten rid of witchcraft in Boston, and he had written a book on it quite literally so that other people suspecting witchcraft would be able to figure out if that's also what's happening for them. But Increase... His father was also a very prominent minister and I think is more credited with air quotes writing the book on witchcraft. And he even himself had said, listen, spectral evidence is not credible evidence. So if you have this guy that believes in witchcraft and believes in putting these people on trial, but even he's saying don't use this kind of evidence, maybe we shouldn't be using this kind of evidence. Right. Not surprisingly, without the power of hearsay on their side, accusers would become much less successful in prosecuting and convicting the accused. More than four dozen individuals were accused of witchcraft in the early months of 1693, but only three of those would be convicted. And of those, none died. In fact, Governor Phipps would eventually pardon all of them. Now that the passions had cooled in Salem, and some of the the through-the-grapevine gossip had been stamped out by no longer allowing this spectral evidence— The trials would start to be seen for what they had been all along, an embarrassing and really shameful sham that would go on to stain the name of Salem, making it a sort of penny dreadful for future generations, warning against fast assumptions and even swifter justice. All told, more than 200 men and women were accused of witchcraft and or of being possessed and empowered by the devil himself. 30 were found guilty. 19 of those convicted of witchcraft would be hung at Gallows Hill in Salem Village. Wow. Five more died in custody awaiting trial. And one man that we heard about earlier, Giles Corey, would be crushed to death. 25 souls lost. And this, of course, does not even begin to take into consideration the countless victims, the friends, family members, and loved ones that suffered because of the 25 lives that were needlessly and viciously taken. And the ripples of this time in history continue to modernity. Believe it or not, it was only in July of 2022 that Elizabeth Johnson Jr., the last convicted Salem witch, whose name had yet to be cleared, was officially exonerated. Only in 2022. In my mind, one of the most criminal things that happened here was people being convicted and sentenced to death for the crime of simply being different. 
for being themselves. And what's so fascinating is that, especially in the beginning, they weren't even loudly being themselves. Tichibu was just trying to make the best of her enslaved state, have a good relationship with her family, teach the kids, clean the house, do the things. Sarah Good just wanted to end her days in peace after having lost her love and her livelihood. And Sarah Osborne, while disruptive, truly seemed more conflicted and agitated and unwell than she did possessed when we look at it through hindsight. A more modern and forensic look at Salem's history tells a much more damning story about humans and our nature than it does about anything having to do with the devil. Many in the village accused of being a witch had one thing in common. They were enemies of the prominent Putnam family. In the end, they would be responsible for bringing some three dozen accusations of witchcraft forward to be adjudicated. It makes one wonder if salvation was really the goal of some accusers or if something more enticing like power and influence were the real progenitors. Fear is, after all, a powerful thing. It's an instinct that at its core is meant to protect us, seemingly designed to keep us out of harm's way, to help us spot and avoid danger. But the tricky part about fear is that our minds and heart don't always know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. And even real fears come in all sorts of complicated shapes and sizes. It feels reasonable to think that many who had been accused falsely admitted their guilt out of fear that the alternative of telling the truth was worse. Lying would allow them to live some semblance of a life, even if it was as an outcast. But truth-telling, saying that they were innocent, would almost certainly lead to their death. It's probably also safe to say that some in Salem really were afraid of being possessed by the devil and having their souls condemned to hellfire. But some may have instead been afraid of something far worse. The idea of being made powerless, right. being obsolete, or worse yet, of just being forgotten. Some, like the Putnams, were so afraid of being nameless in the halls of history that they were willing to falsely accuse and even to kill. For what it's worth, Anne Putnam, one of the most prolific accusers during this really bizarre and dark time in our world's history, she did apologize in her role for things. Lots of officials did at that time. I think this was too little too late, if you ask me. But it is representative of the lasting impact these trials have had on our culture and on our psyche. Some of these are more abstract. I hope, for instance, that these trials were good lessons for us on rejecting bias and accusations based on fear. I think there's a great deal of evidence that they have. Halloween and spooky season in and of themselves are good proof that we've learned to embrace these kinds of beliefs with a sense of fun and frivolity. We don't take them as seriously. I think we've also learned a great deal about the value of skepticism and logical arguments that don't rely on page six style lies and tabloid drama. More concretely though, some of these pretty egregious missteps and misuses of power witnessed during the trials changed forever how our courts work in the United States and really around the world. We can thank the Salem Witch Trials for requirements that the accused have access to representation. And next time you see or hear a really spectacular cross-examination, know that it too was a product of the Witch Trials, helping to ensure that proceedings are more fair and well-rounded, that we can hear all sides of the story. Lastly, and maybe most importantly, these trials laid the foundation of the U.S. systems that presumes innocence instead of walking in presuming guilt. And maybe at a macro level, the most important lesson of all from the Salem Winch trials is that sometimes going through something so bad can make us better in its aftermath. It's almost like the bad gives us a new perspective, that some of the fuzzy, unfocused parts of our viewpoint are made more clear when the dust settles and our own ignorance is put on full display for us so we can correct it. The bad, and the admission of our own part in it, helps us better define the good. And that's, I think, a lesson worth learning. Maybe next time we can just skip the horrific death and dying part of it. Yeah, because, I mean, <laughs> golly, that's, it's so many people. Um, I don't know if you um, have it, but, like, one of, like, the youngest ones, like, was four. Yes. Um, I think the little girl's name was Dorothy. She wasn't put to death, but I think her mom was. And she was imprisoned. So, I mean, it really did get to get, like, it, it just went completely overboard for what it was. Several of the different articles, and I tried to find some ones that were a bit more academic in nature, almost right. encyclopedic in nature, to really 
look at what happened. And I mean, some of these even say there might have been reasons to believe that what these girls was were going through, like some of it was real, but that it just wasn't supernatural. They were basically saying that something like Lyme's disease um, or some other, you know, catchable like, sicknesses yeah, out there could have like been causing poisoning. Yes, yeah, um, could be causing some of these symptoms. You mix that with a little bit of superstition and um, mob mentality, and what happens when a fear state hits a concerted community, and people go real stupid, real bad. So it's like I can even get to a place where I don't assume that every single aspect of the witch trials was political or right. gross in nature. But even still, even when I allow in the the idea that some of that fear might have been real and that some of their symptoms might have even been real and, and felt so unnatural to the other people, it still doesn't forgive the larger acts. And there were so many points. You, you hung 19 people. Every time after one of those killings, you had an opportunity to pause and say, should we keep doing this? It's <laughs> like, so weird because, like, if we think about things like that, the dynamics are so at opposite ends. For example, right? Here are hysterical teenage young girls, right, mm. who are making these accusations and things like that. First of all, like, I don't think anything was wrong with them. I think that for whatever reason, I do think that it probably was – I mean, teen girls can be incredibly mean. But let's think about the time, right? Women, especially girls, they had like zero power. They had nothing. They were no one, right? Their job was to get married, have babies. That was it. The This savior was coming to save them. These, these men were branching together, really listening to these girls for the first time in their entire lives. Someone was really paying attention to them. They were more than just their uterus. Yeah. And so it is just such a weird dynamic, too, that, like, at that time, like, women were were nothing but that. And yet these men listened to them and, and killed people based on it. And then the other thing is that any time in the future that, like, women would be hysteric or we would point to something – that people couldn't believe. Like, I don't know why. I, I must we have to do an episode on Bill Cosby because I just I feel like I've said his name every every time we talk <laughs> it's about true. right. He people, frequently comes yeah, up. <laughs> people are like, oh, that couldn't possibly be true. These women are not telling the truth, right? It's the Salem witch trials all over again. That's right. And so it it is just interesting how this one moment in time, which by the way, while these teenage girls were you know their their behavior disgusting but they're they're teenage girls like they're petty they're ugly to one another things like that it was the men in the community who actually convicted and killed the people not the women but yet we will be blamed for the rest of eternity yeah and any women that were involved in it it was it was women that, you know, not so shockingly had already attained a modicum of power from marrying into right. prominent you know, families, right? So they were basically carrying their husband's name. And it was almost this like, well, I've made it mentality, but I almost this like view that I can't have it all if you have it too. So I'm just going to make sure you stay small, you know? And it, I mean, it's just such a gross mentality around it. I don't understand it at all. I also, I love what you said about, you know, they're doing this toward women. And it's like, I think this shows too how petty men can be because mm -hmm. that was all coming from a place of fear. Like supposedly these women are your property, but they're also the person that can single-handedly, like you think three little girls almost single-handedly took down an entire community. Like, wait a minute. Do you think they're worth nothing or do you think they're more powerful than you? And that's right. what you're really scared of. Right. It was almost I like don't know. <laughs> both sides of the mouth. It, um, oh, I love what you said about – it was something about like what you were saying that we can't be great together. Like I have to be good or you have to be good. That's right. You know, and it's so funny because I think I, I definitely have worked with and been around people in my life who are that way. You're not allowed to shine as bright as Right. Me. Yeah. We if can't... I'm going to shine, you can't shine too because that's going to somehow dim my light. And it's yes. like, that's not how light works. <laughs> like, no. You can have more than one spotlight. It's fine. And it is the <laughs> like, most frustrating thing it is. on the planet. And so when you said that, I'm like, oh, I love that because I will say that, you know, 
sometimes throughout different circumstances. I just, it's important that we just learn from it, right? Like, I think that was what I, the feeling that I was left with, those last couple of lines of like the bad and the admission of our part in it helps us better define the good. And once that's better defined, like, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to do bad shit. Now, I would argue this was a lot of bad criminal shit. And this beyond what we already mentioned, I see, like, this is why some things in our constitution about separation of church and state are so important. Because while individual, well-grounded faith is a beautiful, beautiful thing, the line between that and superstition is so thin and when we start going into that realm of superstition it can just really rile people up and we have so many examples of history of knowing that we've just got to learn from them it's it's okay that we did it we don't have to bear that like a burden on our backs we just have to learn from it and do better i tell people all the time i'm like if if religion or any you know i'll go as far as to call it faith it's coming at you that's essentially saying like you're not a good person or some of your like natural rights are you shouldn't have then you should really be questioning is this really yeah what a how a higher that's, power intended that's right you know, is this really the message that's right um, but yeah i it's such an interesting story i have um read books on the Salem Witch Trial and definitely seen some like dramatizations over the year. That and um, what is it? The Scarlet Letter. Yeah. So love that kind of time period. Um, I was just talking to Thomas earlier that like would love to go to Salem one day and check out probably not in October, but in a different time. But like it's just such a cool thing cool environment and and i do think that salem is at the point too where they they really do they want people to learn from like this is what happened and for me like being a part of a group that is still sometimes marginalized and that people have a lot of hate towards like this story still rings true for me oh like the original the original people accused of this were accused just because they were different there is there is a world where if we hadn't come so far that me simply for existing people might accuse me of witchcraft and hang me by a noose just just because I my my life's a little different than theirs. It's so crazy to me. Um, but I'm also comforted by the fact that I don't have to worry about that, yeah. at least in the United States today. So. so I have a question for you. Yeah. One is, what do you think was wrong with the girls? Like, why, why were they throwing fits? I read a couple of articles. One was from, like, History.com and one was from Britannica. So it was a bit more encyclopedic. And I do think that there was legitimately probably somewhere mixed in there some legitimate illness like we knew nothing about things like um i mentioned lyme disease earlier but also epilepsy that could have easily caused some of this encephalitis like just an infection in the brain could have caused it and all of that would have been very common at the time and we wouldn't have had the knowledge to diagnose them yet so i i think that was part of it there was also some mention of child abuse and not just physical but like also emotional that's what comes to mind for me. Like when you look at some of the initial accusers, the people that pointed this out, they're rich little girls growing up in a puritanical society. It's 1692. There aren't board games. There is no television. And now, because you live in a puritanical society, there ain't no sex. There ain't no boys. What else are you going to do with your time? And then we have modern examples that we can look at of kids of politician and kids of celebrities. That's a harsh life you were growing up in the spotlight so for me i think this was a mixture of attention getting and probably a little bit of real illness in some of the cases that culminated in all this to do yeah i can easily see that where there is different there's stuff going around you think i mean at that time i mean anything could get you sick i think also too just for like girls at that age it's just i always say like seventh grade which is about the age that some of these girls were. Yeah. Um, it's just such a tough, you're stuck somewhere between, and probably even more so at this age because they were essentially on the cusp of becoming women, yes. right? Like they they were getting close to being married. There's also a surge of hormones that are hitting your body at that point, just like naturally. That again, you're being told to deny in this more puritanical society. Like, oh, you've got these urges, shut them up. (laughs) Yeah, and and to your point too, I mean, girl, I think even to like their friendship with, with other girls, with women, 
is a very complicated thing, right? And sometimes there's that thin line between between love and hate. And so I, I do think it's probably a mixture of, of all of those things. Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. Would you have confessed? Like, would you have admitted to being a witch? Or would you have went down? Would you have let them take you all the way? I mean, I, I would have just admitted to witchcraft. Like, I just would have lived as an outcast. I would have been fine with that. I would never have been able to give up the name of someone else. Right. I don't think I could morally do that. But like to tell a simple lie to get out of and all the only thing is like you just think that God's going to have his way with me. Like he's going to have his way with me one way or the other. Right. So like <laughs> we good boy. Like I don't know that I would have. Uh, what would you have done though? Oh, please. Me? I would have for sure owned some beautiful lie. <laughs> I would have been like, by the way, this is the ritual that I use. Hum, ba, nah, ba, nah, ba, nah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It would have been a full ceremony and <laughs> I would have come with receipts and I would have 100% had a list of people in my head <laughs> that I had probably been gathering since I was like four years old. The karma list would have showed up. I just, I need listeners to know that while I love Carla, <laughs> I am mildly terrified of her. <laughs> Wait, I for, my friends and I, we used to joke um, when the Purge movies came out. Oh, yeah. And we were we were like, so like, if somebody would piss us off, we, we would text each other like in a group chat. They're like, they just, they just got on the Purge list. That's right. Like, they just hit the Purge list. And so, like, instead of, like, the shit list, it'd be, like, the purge list. Like, if there was ever a purge, I mean, we were never going to, like, seek them out. But if there were ever a purge. In my own way, though, like, I, I don't know. I, here's my addition to that. I think I would just admit it, but then I would be plotting my revenge the entire time. Yeah. Because, and nothing violent, but, like, just enough to, like, spread some more crazy and, you know, exert a little bit of power over that narrative in that situation, I, I would be a bitty about it. You know, I, I like would go it. in there and <laughs> stir the pot a little bit more. <laughs> Michael, you did a really good job. I thought the story was done very, very well. Thank you so much. That, our nosy bees, is the sad, holy shit, I can't believe it's real story of the Salem witch trials. History, I, I'm telling you. I mean, it's just crazy. We can't it's, make this shit up. It's stranger than fiction. You would never think that that is a real thing that happened, and yet it did. Um, and we hope that this helps round out your spooky season in fabulous fashion. We're giving you this episode several days earlier than our normal release yep. schedule so that you can have this on Halloween night. And we do hope that it's a fantastic Halloween night to all of you nosy bees out there. And until next time, bitches. Bye. Bye. Hey, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback But at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind, stay curious, but of course, stay nosy, bitches. bitches.